Good evening. The House of Representatives hands President Biden his American Rescue Plan, the next fight, child refugees at the southern border. Haiti, Venezuela, a new kind of mining disaster, Bitcoin in the Finger Lakes, and the mayor and a former health official did the city's early COVID response fail. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, March 10th, 2021. Congress approved the landmark $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief bill Wednesday as President Joe Biden and Democrats claimed a major triumph on legislation to marshal the government against the pandemic and economic crisis upending the nation. The White House press secretary announced that tomorrow will be the big day. With today's passage of the rescue plan, I can announce that the president will sign the bill uh, at the White House on Friday afternoon. We spent a lot of time, of course, from the podium talking about the mechanics of how a bill becomes a law. And I know there's lots of interest in what comes next. The House clerks will deliver it to the White House for the president's signature. We expect that delivery to happen sometime tomorrow, and then the president will sign it on Friday. We, of course, are moving full speed ahead on the implementation of the bill because we know the American people need help and need it as soon as possible. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, Senate and House Democrats had their own moment in the sun as both House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer signed the massive 600-plus page bill on the Capitol portico in the sun, framed by the Washington Monument in the distance. They echoed the president's rare tweet earlier today, help is here. This is the most consequential legislation that many of us will ever be a party to. Who knows what the future may bring? But nonetheless, on this day, we celebrate because we are honoring a promise made by our president. And as we join with him in promising that help is on the way. Senator Chuck Schumer. We say to America, help is on the way. You will receive $1,400 checks by the end of March. Help is on the way. Vaccines will be available far more quickly to far more people at a sh- in a shorter time. Help is on the way. Our schools will open safely and more quickly than we thought. Help is on the way. Half of America's children who are in poverty will not be in poverty because of this bill. And you know what we can show America? That we can get things done to make their lives better. And we will continue to do that through the rest of this session. Help is on the way. Maybe most noticeable to many Americans are the provisions providing up to $1,400 in direct payments this year to most adults and extending $300 weekly emergency unemployment benefits into early September. But more than that, providing $350 billion in funding to states and local governments to fight the COVID epidemic and get more Americans working again. Despite the celebrations, though, the bill is a rescue plan coming at a time when over 525,000 Americans have died from the virus the same number of people who live in Topeka, Kansas. Biden's plan passed in the House 210 to 220, but with not one Republican willing to support the bill. President Biden has publicly shrugged off the snub, saying as many as 75 percent of Americans support it, including a plurality of Republican voters. Bypassing the GOP's obstructionist tactics in large part because of a surprise Democratic victory in once red state, Georgia. 
Meanwhile, Biden's administration is racing to deal with an increasing number of migrant children arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border, but it has limited options, and according to one official, none are great. The United States Customs and Border Protection announced on Wednesday that 100,441 people had attempted entry along the U.S. southern border in February, a 28% increase from January. The agency reported that 9,457 of those individuals were unaccompanied minors, a 62% increase from January. The influx, which comes as Biden relaxes some of former President Donald Trump's more restrictive immigration policies, has left the Democratic president facing criticism not only from opposition Republicans, but also members of his own party who say some children are being held in custody for too long. The GOP has been quick to put their loss over the American Rescue Plan in the rearview mirror, moving to the topic of the border, trying to force Biden to admit he has caused a crisis by backing off of Trump's hardline approach. This year, we've seen double the number of apprehensions at the border. We're on pace to have over 120,000 migrant children trafficked here to the United States. That's 30 percent higher than any record year prior. Roberta Jacobson is the coordinator of the southwestern border on the National Security Council. She advised today the border is not open. Today we are announcing the restarting of the Central American Minors Program for children to be reunited with a parent who is legally in the United States. This program was ended abruptly by the previous administration, leaving around 3,000 children already approved for travel stranded. In phase two, we will be working to improve the CAM program to expand safe and legal avenues for, to the United States. I want to be clear, neither, in this, neither this announcement nor any of the other measures suggests that anyone, especially children and families with young children, should make the dangerous trip to try and enter the U.S. in an irregular fashion. The border is not open. Jacobson was pressed about Biden's policies. If they were enticing migrants, she says it's all about hope. We've seen surges before. Surges tend to respond to hope. And there was a significant hope for a more humane policy after four years of, you know, pent up demand. So I don't know whether I would call that a coincidence, but I certainly think that the idea that a more humane policy would be in place may have driven people to make that decision. But perhaps more importantly, it definitely drove smugglers to express disinformation, to spread disinformation about what was now possible. Roberta Jacobson is the coordinator of the southwestern border on the National Security Council. The White House has been subject to pushback from some Democrats, arguing the administration isn't spending enough to ensure minors were being kept in facilities that were appropriate for children. And as if the problems at the border aren't enough for the administration, a crisis is growing in Haiti, where weekly protests are growing more intense against the island nation's president, Jovenel Moise, and his attempt to prolong his term in office. Human rights lawyer Brian Concanon is executive director of Project Blueprint. The protests in Haiti continue to escalate. Each Sunday has, ha has seen larger and larger protests. The, there is a broad civil society consensus that President Moise's term ended on February 7th. Uh, that consensus includes the major religious organizations, the, the, the judicial oversight body, the law associations, and 
tens of thousands of protesters taking to the streets. And they're insisting that President Moise needs to go in order for, for Haiti to emerge out of this crisis. The administration on February 5th put its foot on the scales in favor of President Moise. It ignored the civil society consensus that his term was about to end and said very clearly that the U.S. is recognizing that President Moise has another year in office. The U.S. has also declined to oppose a referendum that Moise is running, and he's doing it with the support of the U.N., which gets a lot of its money from the United States. So the international community is backing Moise's constitutional referendum. And that's very dangerous because the referendum itself is illegal. You have to go, as in the U.S., it's somewhat complicated to change the Constitution because they want the Constitution to be a bulwark against people like Mr. Moise. Through the Constitution, he'd like to abolish the Senate, give himself impunity, and allow himself to handpick the Electoral Council. How is the United States reacting, and is he any different than Donald Trump? So far, the Biden administration has recognized that Moise has another year in office. It has not opposed the amendment. It is pushing back lightly, but pretty ineffectually against some of the worst things that Moise has done, including firing three Supreme Court justices. But the U.S. has not yet taken steps that will actually lead to change in Haiti. What most Haitians want, they don't want the U.S. to pull Moise down. They want the U.S. to stop propping him up. Uh, Most Haitians believe that the only way that Moise is still in office, despite such widespread opposition, is that he's being supported by the U.S. In terms of whether there's been a change from the Biden administration, from the Trump administration, there has not yet. The Trump administration supported because he was a reliable vote against Venezuela and Cuba at the OAS. And the Biden administration is continuing that process of support. The U.S. does not want solidarity within Latin America to oppose U.S. projects in the region. Where does this go? The Haitians have shown no sign of giving up. They're asking people in the United States to support their struggle for democracy. This week on Thursday and Friday, there will be hearings at the House Foreign Affairs Committee, which has been taking a more critical view of the Biden administration policy. Hopefully that the members of Congress will be able to talk some sense into the administration and the U.S. will allow a Haitian solution to the crisis to emerge. And that is human rights lawyer Brian Concanon. He's the executive director of Project Blueprint. And in Venezuela, the bitter deadlock between the Madero government and the White House continues despite the change at the top in the United States. The Trump administration was deeply opposed to the Venezuela state to the point of supporting a puppet president, a policy continued by Biden. Steve Elner is a retired professor from Venezuela's Universidad de Oriente. He's currently an associate managing editor of Latin American Perspectives. He says the fight between Venezuela and the United States is far from over, even under Biden. Anthony Blinken claims that Biden is following a new approach and that unlike Trump, the Biden administration will be consulting other governments. But that's also misleading, if not completely fallacious, because Biden will be maintaining the international sanctions, which have caused so much suffering since the beginning of the Trump administration. And actually since Obama, because Obama implemented those sanctions in 2015. The Biden administration continues to recognize the Juan Guaido 
as Venezuela's president, even though Guaido has become highly unpopular among Venezuelans, even among those in the opposition, even among some of his closest supporters who are criticizing him because of lack of accountability and cases of corruption involving the money that he's getting from Washington, supposedly in the form of humanitarian aid. The claim that Washington will be consulting other governments is contradicted by the fact that the European Union has dropped their recognition of Guaido as Venezuelan president. And it also contradicts the fact that in Latin America, the right-wing and conservative governments that try to isolate Venezuela with Washington's encouragement, they're now being voted out of office. And the new governments are maintaining friendly relations with Venezuela, which is the case of Mexico, Argentina, Bolivia, and now possibly Ecuador. What's the purpose of maintaining these sanctions? The claim that the sanctions have not affected the Venezuelan people. The sanctions are designed to hurt the heads of state and the people surrounding Maduro. That's completely false. Uh, The sanctions imposed on Venezuela has been nothing short of a disaster for the Venezuelan people. In the context of the COVID epidemic, Venezuela is very much impeded from being able to purchase much-needed material to face the COVID epidemic because international suppliers are fearful that any transaction with the Venezuelan government, any transaction with Venezuela, that they will get sanctioned themselves. They refuse to sell material to Venezuela And those that do, the few that do, jack up the prices enormously because the law of supply and demand. Trump administration imposed sanctions from the very beginning on PDVSA, which is the Venezuelan oil company. And as a result, oil companies throughout the world have ceased to purchase oil. You don't blame it on the Maduro government's mishandling of the economy? The United States has always wanted to teach Venezuela a lesson, just as in the case of Cuba and just as in the case of other progressive governments. But Washington has singled out Venezuela. Chavez, more than any other progressive Latin American president, served as a spokesman for the entire region, if not the entire world. Washington policymakers are now using the term leverage with regard to sanctions against other countries, Venezuela, Iran, Cuba. And that means that the sanctions are not designed to bring about immediate regime change. The United States is not under any illusion that that's going to happen. But it improves the U.S. bargaining position. That's in the case of Venezuela, Iran, Cuba, North Korea, etc. Those sanctions are a blatant violation of international law, which only allows the U.N. to impose sanctions. The U.S. government spokespeople don't even deny that the sanctions violate international law. Where does this go from here? We will expect a lot of different policies when it comes to domestic policies. But on the international front, Biden is more the same. And his policy towards Venezuela is the same. Spokespeople for the Biden administration continue to talk about regime change. Sometimes they use euphemisms, but basically it boils down to that. With regard to Venezuela, I'm afraid things are going to stay the same. And that is Steve Elner, retired professor from Venezuela's Universidad de Oriente. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Residents of New York State's Finger Lakes region are locked in another bitter fight with a major polluting industry. Indirectly, this time it's mining, but not the pick and shovel kind, the cryptocurrency form of mining that uses thousands of computer servers, not grime-covered, hard-hatted diggers. The cryptocurrency is called Bitcoin, worth recently about $50,000 each. It's an unregulated form of currency. And the Greenridge Corporation that owns a power plant on the shores of Lake Seneca, a few hours drive north of the city, 
owns what's called a peaker plant used only for times of extreme demand. The company sees Bitcoin as a way to keep generating power all year round. But a resident, Joseph Campbell, is part of an organization called Seneca Lake Guardian that's been doing its bit to uh, hold back development in that region. It's a hard slog and they're constantly fighting to keep big companies from exploiting their beautiful rural touristy area. And Campbell had this to say about the struggle against what's called a peaker plant, which means that they supply electricity to the grid during times of uh, peak electrical demand. They sort of did the old bait and switch and proceeded to install 7,000 bit mine servers. You know, they're basically high powered computers and they've been mining Bitcoin now for about a year and a half. And that uses a significant amount of electricity? Bitcoin is a hugely power intensive process. You could actually make your own Bitcoins and get rich, but it would take you forever and use as much electricity as you were making, in, in a sense. This company, instead of supplying power to the grid, they're using the power that they generate to uh, operate their Bitcoin mining operation. They search out places where there's cheap electricity. Plattsburgh, New York, just not too long ago, had a Bitcoin mining company because they're on uh, low-cost hydropower. The problem is that they took so, they're sucking so much power out of the grid that it was driving up prices for the local residents. Where you are, describe that community. We're 11 cold freshwater lakes in the central part of New York State. We're known for not a lot of traffic, clean air, clean water, beautiful vistas, 4.2 trillion gallons. It's the largest body of freshwater solely within New York State borders. This kind of operation is antithetical to what we have here. What would be the effect and, of um, having this? Why would that be antithetical? They're going to run this thing 24-7. They have permits from the DEC to withdraw 139 million gallons of water every day. They have permits to discharge 134 million gallons of water every day. And the water is heated because they're using it for cooling up to 108 degrees Fahrenheit into a lake that even at the height of the summer is only about 76 degrees. <laughs> 108 degrees, that's, that's, you can't, that's too hot to take a bath in. That's like scalding hot water. And that's going to go oh, yeah, into, yeah, yeah. into streams? Going into a stream classified as trout stream by the DEC. Trout are thermally stressed above 70 degrees Fahrenheit. They don't have fish and uh, aquatic life protections in place. They were supposed to put them in place. The DEC has given them until 2022. You know, and they keep pushing it back. It's a giant fish blender. They just suck in fish eggs and discharge this hot water that will thermally stress the fish. The other thing that they're going to do, so they have 7,000 of these miners already in place inside the main structure of the power plant. They want to add up to 30,000 total miners, servers, in separate buildings outside. Computers generate an enormous amount of heat, so they, they have to run cooling fans. People that live there are going to be impacted by noise. Noise travels across still lake waters very readily. So people even across the lake are gonna be listening to this thing, you know, a constant hum. And because they're increasing the power generation, that means they have to burn more natural gas, which flies in the face of Governor Cuomo's nation leading effort to reduce New York State's greenhouse gas emissions. What's your relationship with Governor Cuomo, what do you think about, you know, his big highfalutin promises? 
Governor Cuomo has been a very staunch ally of the Finger Lakes region. We were able to defeat liquefied petroleum gas storage project and the giant garbage burning incinerator. He has a legacy here in the Finger Lakes. He can become a hero to thousands and thousands of people in the Finger Lakes if he would help us one more time defeat this largely unregulated industry. There are things that there are things that the company could do that would mitigate, you know, some of the adverse environmental impacts, but it costs them money and they're in the business of making money, not spending it. We're really hoping that uh, Governor Cuomo hears our plea and steps in, becomes a hero. And that is Joseph Campbell. He's president of Gas Free Seneca and the Seneca Lake Guardian. And New York's former top doctor, Osiris Barbeau, was interviewed by the BBC recently. She was famously fired by Mayor de Blasio, but she says it was the mayor who choked at the start of the pandemic. Barbeau broke into tears as she described the message she says the mayor wasn't ready to hear. Taking my city through what I knew was coming, and it was hard, and it was hard to do And, you know, somehow I managed to do it without crying (laughs) the way that I am now. But, yeah, it was, um, you know, in that moment. I had 8.6 million patients. The mayor was asked about the interview today. He says it's not true. It's just not accurate. What I needed from my health leadership was clear analysis and clear recommendations, and I didn't get that. Uh, That situation is a lot better now, thank God. And I commend our health leadership now for the way they're handling every new development, you know, clearly and decisively. But I'll give you a clear, clear example, Aaron. I'm the person who, based on advice I got from folks other than our health commissioner, called for shelter in place, which I think was one of the most important elements of the strategy. That's what really happened. And my concern there was, of course, that the state of New York could have acted on it immediately and chose to push away that recommendation when they should have embraced it. But thank God we finally got there. And that's Mayor de Blasio. And finally, New York Attorney General Letitia James took action today to stop discrimination, harassment, violent threats, and for the first time, false race-based police reports in a lawsuit against the former owner of a popular ice cream shop in Schenectady, New York. The lawsuit filed against David Elmendorf, the former owner of Bumpy's Polar Freeze, seeks to hold Elmendorf responsible for multiple racist and discriminatory actions she says he took in violation of the law shortly after the ice cream shop allegedly racist hiring practice came to light last year. In altercations with peaceful Black Lives Matter protesters, the Attorney General says Elmendorf brandished weapons and made death threats in order to stop legal protests while simultaneously using a number of offensive racial epithets when referring to black protesters.
And that's some of the news for Wednesday, March 12th. Pardon me. That's some of the news for Wednesday, March 10th, 2021. The news was produced with Reggie Johnson. Uh, pardon me. It was engineered by Reggie Johnson and produced Linda Perry for, from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for joining. <laughs>